Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up free or paid for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two and I've got big plans to cover men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months. That's grantwall.com. But let's bring in Chris Whittingham to talk about the weekend. How are you, Chris? Doing all right, sir. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I'm tired. Very tired. Um, <laughs> lots of travel after the two U.S. men's games in Europe. I came home for like three days, and then I went back to Europe for the U.S. women's game against England, which was just an amazing atmosphere to be in at uh, a sold-out Wembley Stadium on Friday night. 2-1 England win, even though I still think it probably should have been 2-2. Talk to Trandy Robin after the game. She didn't understand why her goal was disallowed. Um, and she'd actually already gone to her phone by that point and was still confused about the whole thing. But a very good uh, you know, atmosphere for the women's game again at Wembley. And um, I don't know. What were your thoughts? Yeah, on, on that game, I, you know, first off, you just sort of turn the TV on and it is so spectacular to watch an atmosphere like that get behind England women. And I sort of wonder if now, because of the fact that they won the Euros and because of the work that's been done in the women's game there, if that's just going to become normal. Maybe not at Wembley, but everywhere they go, they will play in front of a sold-out stadium. There will be big Premier League stadiums that want to entertain the England women's national team that frankly, embarrassingly, did not want to uh, host games during the Women's Euros because they didn't think they could sell out their venues. And now they've been very much proven wrong and hopefully uh, will be wanting to entertain this team. So you always have to start there whenever you see a crowd like that. But after that, I, I must be honest. I think even though you're arguing on behalf of the result, uh, you know, it should have been 2-2, I think England women are better. Like just the way that they play, the comfort that they have on the ball, the way they build up from back to front and have very clear patterns. I think they are better coordinated by their coach, Serena Wiegmann, than the U.S. are under Vlatko Andonovsky. And I am sort of fearful for the U.S. women heading into next summer's World Cup that they haven't really fixed too many of the issues that were exposed at the Olympics in Tokyo. And that I don't actually think this U.S. women's team is moving forward at the pace it needs to. Plenty of players are coming through. I think the, a, a lot of the young players that Vlatko Andonovsky has brought in this team have made an impact. But I mean, from an overall structural standpoint, the way that the European game is professional, I think the American game will have to keep up with it. And I sort of watch that, and I don't necessarily think that it is. Here's what I would say right now is the U.S. has won a personnel issue and that they're missing some important players. But you're right about the midfield in particular. And when the U.S. plays top opponents like England, you come away from that very much noticing that Julie Ertz is not there, that Sam U.S. is not there, that they may not be there at all moving forward. And the replacements just haven't done enough to show that they can make up for that absence. And I really do think the U.S. should have a double pivot against top, top opponents. And so 4-2-3-1 for me would be a much better setup. Andy Sullivan cannot do all the things that Julie Ertz used to do. And Lindsey Horan wasn't really playing like an eight in this game. And so if you have a double pivot, 
two defensive midfielders. I, I feel like that would be a better scenario and might unlock Rose Lavelle a little bit more than we've seen. And I mean, she's a terrific player, but I felt like we were she went missing from large periods of that game. And there's a lot that remains to be seen. You know, will um, will Katarina Macario get back and be healthy and be the starting center forward for this team? That's a really big question. You know, the U.S. was missing Mal Pugh as well. Sophia Smith actually did a pretty good job at center forward, I thought. But if if Macario or Alex Morgan are going to be there and they weren't this time, then she's probably going to play out wide. So, um, but I I do think the gap has been closed. I do think these two teams could meet in the World Cup final next year. and, And that would be an extension of a rivalry that's already building, obviously. But uh, this was just a a really good occasion. I I do think we need to get into something I did address in the Thursday podcast by myself, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. The Yates report really dominated the week. It came out on Monday. It had all sorts of specifics on horrible things that have happened in this culture of abuse the systemic abuse in US or in the NWSL over the last few years. And it's it's so much bigger than any particular game. And we're addressing it now. What was your sense? My sense was first off, th- this report was actually fairly narrow given how long it took for the actual report to come out. So the fact that there is more out there, and the NWSL is conducting its own investigation, is really interesting. And it just goes to show how, realistically, you can probably find an incident of this at most clubs. And that's kind of horrifying. And it's a a failure of the league structures. It's a failure of governance. But for me, the thing that just sort of most stands out to me is when when you read through what happened in Portland, it just goes to show how much any club, right? Because, I mean, you can certainly have a go at, at Portland specifically and the two people that were eventually fired. But for me, the thing that most stands out is the institution is sort of first and foremost going to defend itself. It is first and foremost going to protect its own, protect its the, the members that are sort of most important to the institution surviving rather than stepping outside of it to do the right thing on behalf of a player whom you might not view as massively significant to the club's future, right? And that institutions are first and foremost designed to protect themselves. And that's the thing that most gets in the way of doing the right thing in incidents like this, is that Portland Thorns is going to defend Portland Thorns before it defends any of its players. And more importantly, I think the culture of professional sports in this country is that there is a league... There are owners and there are front office executives. And by the design of the sport and of the government governance of the league, they are at odds with the players, right? In collective bargaining negotiation, in determining salaries, in determining work environments, they are at odds. That is the design of not even just sports, most American work is management versus labor, right? And you see all the ways in which that transpires in our society, a lot of them ugly. And I find really interesting that the only solve to this particular problem is 
the owners of clubs deciding that their players, that their employees are more important than the things that institutionally might benefit them. And how difficult it is in American business for that to be untangled because it's just so hard. It's so hard for an owner to be like, no, you person who I think is responsible for my team having good players and winning, no, you're not as important as any one of our employees being abused, right? And that seems so obvious. And yet the number of failures that we have here would suggest that institutions are not capable of doing this on their own. And so I was just sort of left wondering, what is an ownership model? I actually spoke to Meg Linehan about this on the Dan Levitard show. We had her on. And so I kind of said, like, what is, and you know, Angel City, I think, is sort of a long way towards it. There are former players in there. There are players that I think are, are owners in there that I think have a different mindset than your traditional American sports owner. But you ultimately don't solve the question of how do you get American sports teams, ownership groups, league models away from being at odds with their players so that protecting the players and protecting your employees comes above the success of the institution. And I, I don't know how, how you untangle that. And that ultimately is the crux of not just this problem, but I think a problem that if you investigated other youth soccer setups, if you investigated women's youth soccer clubs, you'd find similar problems there. And you'd find maybe coaches are being abusive because you don't want to have a go at the coach because maybe their coach can get your kid into college, you can get your kid into the professional game. And so you actually, in some ways, twist yourself into a knot about, oh no, we can't, we can't look into this coach because then we've got a problem. Or I've got a problem. So I just don't know how you untangle this stuff because that ultimately is the source of the issue. It's not necessarily a beaut like the, the specific people, it's the system. Okay. But like I also grew up knowing right from wrong. And mm -hmm. so if if some player comes to you and says, I've been abused, can you please investigate this? And your response is to basically protect the abuser. That means you're not really understanding right from wrong. And I, I realize there's a bunch of lawyers at individual NWSL teams at US Soccer who are all about cover your ass and protect the institution. But right from wrong is not that hard. And, and good lawyers, actually, there are some who, who do know the difference between right and wrong and actually do prioritize that. And so I don't think it's inevitable that institutions will do this and enable abusers. But I, I, I do think there are certain types of people in those institutions, whether it's lawyers, owners, what have you, who if they aren't prioritizing doing the right thing, this stuff can come out of that. And clearly this is systemic, what's in this report. So I, I just, I, I don't want to go so far as to say, I think it's inevitable. Um, mm-hmm in institutions, because there are good institutions that would not have let this happen with good leaders, good lawyers, good whatever. Um, I think you're totally right that if you did this investigation in other countries and other leagues and other federations in women's soccer and women's sports, you're going to find stuff in every single one, which is why everyone should be a hell of a lot more proactive about not waiting for reports to come in, because the baseline should be starting this stuff is happening. Let's make sure it doesn't. So I, I guess I, I guess my question to you would be then, what what is it about 
and, and I, I would sort of be curious how, how narrow or how wide we can be about this. What is it about these environments, whether it's sports, whether it's women's sports, or whether it's just sort of business in general? Why, why do you think this problem is so widespread then? Like that, the, the reason why I'm, I'm sort of signaling that it's an institutional problem and that most institutions fail is because I think, I, I'm, I'm not sure there are too many environments where I look at and go, oh, they, they definitely would have protected the employees there. I, I see a lot of organizations that fail at that. And so do you think it's that sports attract abusive people? Or that there are a lot of abusive people in the world that work in a variety of environments. I, I would just sort of be curious what what you're. I mean, I'm not asking you to to, to solve the world's ills, but right. I, I, the reason why I, I sort of looked at that and went to institutional level is because this was an institutional failure. It was. I mean, like I, I, Sally Yates made this very explicit point in her report, which I still think everyone should read. Um, this starts in youth soccer, this culture, and part of it is connected to. The players, whether it's stuff they acquire in youth soccer or, you know, it then continues even as they become professionals later on, they don't actually know where the line is and they haven't been instructed on where the line is that this, oh, wait, that's, you can't do that. And so they become accustomed in youth soccer to, to being abused verbally, emotionally, what have you. And, and then if it's happening at a professional level, I mean, look at what is being written about the Chicago Red Stars and the surveys they did of their players. They didn't even really fully understand how much they were being abused. And if the players can't recognize it and the NWSL, which was on such a shoestring for so long with U.S. soccer, not doing like basic structural things, not having full HR, not having full policies about what's right and what's wrong then there's all this confusion. And so even when complaints come up, then they're not supported. Um, I do think we're going to see more revelations come out of the next report from the NWSL, NWSL PA. Um, and, and there's different levels of awfulness here, it seems like. And I got into this a little bit in some of the stuff I did in the last week. You know, obviously the abusive coaches in the Yates report, that's terrible, awful. Some of this stuff for me seems criminal. And I, I'm curious to see if we'll see any lawsuits from victims against the coaches, the teams, the league, U.S. soccer, about stuff that's come out of this report about inaction. Um, there's another level of awfulness of owners, people who are responsible at the team level who didn't do what they should have, who enabled these abusive coaches and allowed them to continue coaching in the league after that. And then there's another level of the U.S. soccer figures who are implicated in the Yates report. And that includes Jill Ellis. That includes Sunil Gulati, Dan Flynn. Like these were the people running U.S. soccer. And we, we haven't heard as much yet about stuff like that. And, and, you know, Megan Rapinoe was, was very clear in London saying owners Merritt Paulson and Arnhem Whistler are not fit to be in this league. But like, I'm curious to know like what she would think about Jill Ellis. Is Jill Ellis fit to be a president of an NWSL team based on what's in the Yates report? Um, I, I, that's, it's, it's really tough, right? Because everyone, everyone here is complicit. And so, and anyone who didn't stop this from happening ultimately was 
allowing this to happen. I, I think ultimately that stuff will be, you know, hopefully decided by neutral parties that can actually meet out punishments. And you wonder if, you know, someone in San Diego would sort of have the, the, the gumption to do that, to let Jalelis go. I do want to get back to something you said, though, because mm-hmm. you said, you know, what what is it about sports where we almost don't know where we can draw the line? I think this is sort of a, a bigger thing. I think there are a lot of people that view sports as a vehicle to learn the tough lessons in life, as it were, that things that are worth having are hard, that you have to, you know, deal with abusive, not abusive people, you have to deal with people that are going to be hard on you, that can criticize you and can look you in the eye and tell, tell, tell you that you suck today and, and you have to deal with it and move on. And it's a place to learn difficult lessons. And not only is there, you know, something in allowing you to perform better, but there's something in making you a better person as a result of having gone through difficult things, that there's a leadership figure that challenges you to your brink so that you can push through and become better for it, that there's almost a valor in what can be abusive behavior. And that I think is, you know, one of the biggest things that will probably come from this is I think a lot of people have to start examining themselves and examining sports as a vehicle for life lessons in this way, because a lot of people do view sports as that as that as that vehicle. Now, I mean, when it comes to to individual people, it, it's it's tough for me uh, to you know sit here on my uh, you know high horse and say this person should be fired and that person should be fired. But uh, there are a lot of people that have to ask themselves real questions about how they handled this, how they allowed something like this to happen. And ultimately, allowing yourself to be a part of a machine where we don't stop and ask questions and, and make sure that the welfare of everyone involved is comes first and foremost. Yeah, no, that's totally it. And so there's going to be more accountability, uh, I think. There's going to be another report. And I do want to say, I think the U.S. Women's National Team players handled this extremely well this week. And this was a, a high media spotlight in London around this game, and this dominated the conversation. And so the U.S. players who spoke, whether it's Rapino or Becky Sauerbrunn, Alana Cook, Crystal Dunn, Lindsay Horan, um, they've gone through this, unfortunately, too many times where they are being asked to talk about so many things beyond the soccer field, but they are so well-equipped at this point to to speak with power and it's it's so often the players that speak better than the leaders um the officials especially the lawyers that um i just want to you know say respect to the players once again there's another u.s game coming up in spain on tuesday missing 15 spanish players who are uh, locking horns with their federation which is trying not to listen to them and trying to basically put a power play on those 15 players. And it's of a piece with everything we've been talking about here. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, women's players just have to deal with so freaking much. And um, I thought it stood out to me. I wrote about this in my story. Um, on, a, on Friday at an event in London, Becca Rue, who's the executive director of the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association, just said she hoped 2023 would be a year in which the U.S. players could focus on being footballers and not have to always be spokespeople for stuff that's happening outside. And we'll see if that happens or not. 
We did talk about the U.S. women's game. There's lots of stuff that was going on this weekend. October has so much going on at club level as they try to get things done before the the World Cup break in November. And MLS Decision Day happened. And I know you were calling the Inter-Miami game. Inter-Miami has made the playoffs. Congratulations. I, I still think Miami is the only team in the league they can actually call their season successful just by making the playoffs because of everything they had to fight through, but they are in. And I guess the two big stories of decision day were Columbus not making it and Caleb Porter potentially being in jeopardy of losing his job as a result and Portland Timbers not making it and Eric Williamson not playing at all in that game and just such a crazy week Obviously, so much going on in Portland with that team. Where do you want to start? Uh, I think we should probably start with uh, the Eastern Conference situation with Columbus because it's interesting. So they win the league in 2020 and they move into a new stadium. And it was sort of a signal that Columbus is going to have the rebirth that Sporting Kansas City had by moving into a new stadium. And a lot of these teams have done by sort of changing their sort of ethos from, you know, we're, we're a small club to we've got a cool stadium, we've got one of the best in the league, and we're going to buy big-name DPs, which they've done twice now. They signed Lucas Elorayan ahead of 2020, who helped them win the title. And then this summer, as things were struggling, they had, you know, lost form in their strikers in Giassi's artists and Miguel Barry. They go and sign Cucho Hernandez from Watford, and he hits the ground running. He's, I think he scored eight in his first eight and they were absolutely on fire, and they're just a team that will continue to retool and regenerate, and they are a completely new team in MLS. And then they completely hit a wall, and they are one of the worst teams in terms of giving up goals late, holding, right. on, to, ho- holding on to games for winning positions again today, 1-0 up, lose by two goals to one. Uh, I, the MLS soccer guys, uh, Tom Bogart and Matt Dole, have done a great job of chronicling just how bad they've been in giving up points late on in the day. They did it again. And considering the talent in that team, it doesn't make sense. I mean, in terms of central midfields, you have Artur, who's been great in this league. Darlington Nagby is one of the best midfielders in league history. And Aiden Morris is a really promising young player. If you look at their attacking options, they have Zella Ryan behind Kucho Hernandez. Those are really good. As far as center backs go, I think, you know, Milos Dekanek and Jonathan Mensah, good combo. Eloy Room and goal. Like, you go around that team. Stephen Marrero, one of the best right backs in the league. And for whatever reason, it doesn't, like they, they should be so much better. And there's been a lot of pressure on Caleb Porter, and I think this finally uh, signals the end of his era. I just sort of wonder if he's one of the coaches in MLS that has a quick life cycle because I, his, his reputation in Portland was goes really far in the playoffs, then misses the playoffs the next year. Goes really far, misses, then he got let go. And this year or in Columbus, it was win the title, then don't make the playoffs the next two years. I wonder if he just sort of has a very quick life cycle uh, within MLS, but it, it just was really surprising to see Columbus not be able to get over the line because over the course of the summer, from a Miami point of view, Miami were at one point 10th or 11th in the East, and you're looking up and you're going, well, okay, well, Columbus will definitely be in. You're chasing the Cincinnati's and the Orlando's of the world, and it turned out that Columbus was the team that got pipped by everybody else. I like pipped as a word. That's a very fancy <laughs> loud word. Um, and I, I would say, I mean, what we know about Caleb Porter is he's won titles in this league, multiple titles. But you're right. It's a little Mourinho-like where Mourinho tends to not stay beyond three seasons. 
And I think Caleb Porter grinds his players and his assistant coaches quite a bit. And I don't know if that's a, a successful way to go in the long term. Um, and this is a Columbus team that's now missed the playoffs two straight years with way too much talent to be missing the playoffs. And uh, just, it's an odd one. It's been an odd season, to be honest, in MLS. A lot of teams we've grown accustomed to seeing have success in the league haven't. And that's Seattle not finishing eleventh is like looking at Seattle on the table right. and seeing them with an eleven next to their name is unbelievably strange. They have, they made the playoffs every year in their right. club history in MLS, right? So it's just so bizarre to see that Columbus. Uh, you know, this is a very first takey thing to do. Also, <laughs> I I sometimes wonder if MLS should have a few more first takey kind of things happen <laughs> to it. But I think it, this these last two seasons have co- have gone to show that I think Columbus's league title in twenty twenty was. I don't want to go so far as to say fraudulent, but definitely an outlier. <laughs> like, it, it was. If you go back, I mean, 2020 was an unbelievably strange season. They played 23 regular yeah. season games. There were bouts with COVID at big moments, including for Columbus heading into the final. They were huge underdogs because of the players they were missing due to, right. due to COVID in the final. But they played 23 regular season games. They didn't win a single away match all season long. In the 23 regular season games and in the playoffs, they did not win a single away match. And... Uh, you just sort of go back and go, well, uh, in, in the grand context of things, that was a complete one-off, them winning the title. That sound you hear is the asterisk that Chris Whittingham <laughs> just placed on Columbus's 2020 MLS title. Not giving credit for getting through the pandemic. Congratulations, players, for everything you did to survive this season. No, we're going to put an asterisk next to your title. Uh, not we, Chris is. Yes. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was a truly strange year, right? Yeah. Um, and it was the the MLS's back tournament, which Portland won, and and you know, look, it, it's yeah, strange times. But I, I I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that some new teams are like in the playoffs and MLS, and and we'll see how they do. And so it's not ruined if Seattle's not in the playoffs. Um, but another thing, let's look at the West. Um, Portland ends up not making it, losing to Salt Lake, which has made it. And, I mean, obviously, the first question you have is with Portland because Gavin Wilkinson was fired this week, their GM, connected to the Yates report. Mike Golub, president of business, was fired this week due to his mentions connection to the Yates report. Merritt Paulson has pulled himself away from Thorne's duties but still remains owner of the Thorns and Timbers. But there's so much turmoil happening. Even today, we saw Alaska Airlines, their shirt sponsor, say that their dollars are not going to the teams this next quarter. They're going to go to the players um, up in Portland. And so huge turmoil this week. And you have to think that that was being noticed by the Portland Timbers players. No question. I think it must have been an impossible week to just sort of like go go in and do your work given everything that was going on uh, with the Yates report. By the way, the Portland Thorns have a home playoff game to come in the NWSL playoffs at some point. I believe they have a first round bye as a result of the regular season performance, but I can't even imagine what that home game is going to be like. There are going to be massive protests and you would hope that 
it's so hard. Like if you're a fan, how do you separate getting behind the players that you're there to support and sort of not wanting to cheer on this institution that you feel like doesn't live up to your values at times? So that, I mean, that will be fascinating. But yeah, I think, you know, Portland, you mentioned uh, no Eric Williamson. That was bizarre. You wonder why that happened. And you just sort of wonder that almost no matter the circumstances, even if Williamson had played, that Portland has just gone through too much. And frankly, not not to say that this is sort of a, a, a any kind of real punishment, but that maybe this wasn't the year for them to make the playoffs. This is also what when I reiterate that 14 MLS teams do make the playoffs. And so mm-hmm. when we're talking about teams that are just missing out, I'm not feeling that sorry for them because it's a little bit like U.S. men's national team fans arguing about the 25th player who makes the national team roster. These aren't starters. Why are you making such a big deal? Like it's like none of these teams on the playoff border in MLS are good teams. So, so I just want to or, remind or, everyone. Or haven't, been given, or haven't been given ample opportunities to make the playoffs, right? There are <laughs> a minimum of seven results where you go back in the season and go, well, if you change that one, that was you very obviously giving a game away, then you would be here. Like you, you are given ample opportunity to make the MLS postseason. I mean, like, I almost feel like they should call it decision day for mediocre MLS teams. <laughs> <laughs> because that's all they yeah. are. That's all they but, are. Th- I mean, that being said, if any one of them won it, you wouldn't be that surprised. But that's the thing about the MLS playoffs is, okay, right. now you're in the tournament and, you know, it... I, I guess I understand the way MLS is structured and I, I like the single elimination playoffs. It, it's just the regular season, man, it's a slog and I'm glad it's over. And yeah, you know, the playoffs will start soon. NWSL playoffs will start soon and playoff soccer is good. Desperation soccer is good. I will watch the games, but like it, it was a little hard for me to drum up too much in the way of high stakes for like all these mediocre teams. Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, in, ter- in terms of, uh, you know, the, the top seeds, the top seeds in the East were still somewhat up for grabs because yeah. uh, if Philly lost and Montreal won, the Montreal would have been top. By the way, I saw Montreal today beat Miami. Montreal are fantastic. If they we want to do like, like league, league stories, I think Wilfred Nancy is the best coach in the league. Not, not like he should be, the MLS coach of the year. I'm saying I think he's the best coach in the league. And the way mm-hmm. that he gets a group of players, if you look at their the names on their sheet, that's not a team where you go, oh wow, what an impressive group of players. Or they have, you know, a massive MLS pedigree. Every single one of those players knows what what, what their next pass is. Every single one of the players has the confidence and the quality to go beyond their mark. And I, I was just so impressed by watching them play. They set a club record for wins, uh, for points, for goals scored. Like th- This is by far the best Montreal team that there has ever been. And Wilfred Nancy, I think, should be like, I, I don't think there's anything that I, for me that is out of reach for him. I think, you know, in some ways, the internal coaching market, I don't think is sort of prolific enough. I think like, you know, if Columbus went for Wilfred Nancy and be like, hey, we want you to come coach our amazingly talented DPs, I think he should sort of look into that. And also, like, if... Maybe that's not good enough. I honestly think if there's a French Ligue 1 club that like we want to bring in a really good coach, I think he should go. I think he should be managing in France. I think he's that good. What a coach and what a team and what a job he's done with a group of players you look at and go, I don't even know this is a playoff team and they could have easily been the one seed in the East. They could win the whole thing. And that would be kind of amusing actually for an MLS that doesn't really 
make a big deal out of Montreal. But yeah. they've been fantastic all season long. You're, you're totally and, and, right. And, and, and they, don't have, they don't have enormous star DPs. Victor Wanyama is a player who's got European previous, but it's not like, you know, their their attackers aren't, you know, huge household names. Georgi Mihailovic did get sold for $6 million to Azad Alkmaar. I think he, you know, could potentially become a U.S. national teamer at some point, although he won't probably be. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I actually, to, to be, you know, I, I'm not saying Zed just because it's English, but I actually, I have a Dutch colleague that has correctly told me how to say the names of all the Dutch clubs. Do you know that it's actually not PSV, it's PSV? That's how you're supposed to say that. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. That's how they say it. Like, like, okay, that's how the Dutch say it. But I'm just saying, like, the letters are still a PSV. Hmm. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call them PSV from now on. You're not going to stop me. <laughs> no, like I'm not going to say. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, fair enough. Why is there a team in the Dutch league called Go Ahead Eagles? Oh, I, it's one of my favorite teams. Although for me, the best league for names is the Bolivian League. Oh, the strongest. Love, uh, yeah, the strongest. There's a club just named after some dude, Jorge Vilsterman, I think is what it's called. There's like, yeah, every name in the Bolivian League is top notch. Oh, shoot. Um, okay, so let's move on here and talk about probably the game of the weekend in the Premier League, Arsenal 3, Liverpool 2. What stood out to you about this game? What stood out to me is, one, I think we have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that Arsenal are a team that are not worthy of our respect. or I, I think the conversation about them has sort of been framed around their preseason expectations. And I actually, in some ways, it's the case with both of these teams because we're so, oh, what's wrong with Liverpool? As if they should be a title contender. And are Arsenal title contenders? Because we thought they were going to maybe be competing for top four. And I think today was the day that for both teams, we have to start sort of treating Liverpool as, are you going to be good enough to make the top four? Right. I, I don't know. I don't know if they are. And Arsenal, we have to start treating them as they're good enough to win this league. And I know that that seems incredibly lofty considering the standard that Manchester City have set at times and just the imperiousness of Erling Haaland and the, the imperiousness of that team. But I think we have to start genuinely saying Arsenal are title contenders. When they beat Liverpool at home, when they have gone about their business the way that they have, they are a title contender. And today was the day where I think we have to start treating them with the respect that they deserve to be in this conversation with Manchester City. Not because you know, of their current position in the league table, but because you watch them play and they are that good. They are good enough to be of the standard to win this league. And we have to sort of throw out that maybe we haven't seen this group of players or really any of the individual players within this team win at a high level before. But when you see the skill that Gabriel Martinelli scores his first goal with and the overall skill that he demonstrates in this game, you have to say, that's good enough. Bukayo Saka is a player who is good enough to win at this high of a level. This team is good enough to win at this high of a level. I think today was the first kind of statement of intent for all right, this isn't about what we thought of them going into the season. This is this team is good enough to win the league. And I think we have to start treating them as such now going forward. I mean, Arsenal has clearly made a, a major jump this season because like home games against Liverpool the last few years, you know, you felt like Liverpool is going to win that. Mm-hmm. And so Arsenal is taking care of business against, you know, difficult opponents. And, and Liverpool is really going through it, right? They're only on 10 points. Um, and yet 
lingering in my mind here still is the fact that Arsenal got this game at home, just like they got Spurs at home. And so the schedule really is set up well for them. And I I now feel like just looking ahead at the Arsenal schedule, like I think they're going to probably be in first place through and at, you know, until immediately after the World Cup break. I don't think they're going to get many challenges here. I still think if they played Man City, chances are Man City would crush them. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think that. I, I, I think that Arsenal are good enough to give them a game. They've given them a game even in the last couple of years when Arsenal's level was lower. I, I, I don't I, I think Arsenal would score a couple goals at the very least on Manchester the City. The only I don't question I have about City is if you're dropping points against Aston Villa or Newcastle, right? So that I mean, and Arsenal's a much better team than those teams. Um, but I, I still don't, I'm still not totally, I think they are a title contender, but I still, I'm not sure they're the second, one of the two best teams in the league, if that makes who, sense. Who, who else, who, who else would you have as, who would you have, who would you have above them? Um, at this point, I think Spurs, even though they beat them. Really? Even though they're, they, they don't, Spurs, I think are a more of a grinding team under Antonio Conte, but I think over the course of a season, I think Spurs will be in this. Um, I think City is, for me, pretty clearly, their ceiling is is far above the ceiling of any other team in this league. Um, and we'll see how they how they do against the Newcastles and the Aston Villas moving forward. But uh, I think Man City is a scary team. I don't know I, if I would I, say I scary. I agree. And that, that's fair. I think Arsenal are... If you say that they're good enough to get to the World Cup break in first, there's still four or five matches left. They're yeah. away at Leeds. They were actually supposed to play Manchester City in a midweek game, but uh, that game was postponed because they have to make up a Europa League match after um, the Queen's passing. Away at Southampton, home Forest, at Chelsea, and then at Wolves is their final uh, game before the World Cup break. I mean, that's you know five that's, or six games where... Tough. Yeah, oh, I mean, away away at Chelsea is no doubt the biggest test there. And Chelsea, by the way, resurgent under Graham Potter. They've won three in a row. I think they look pretty good. Christian Pulisic scored a goal. I believe we're going to get to that. Um, but I, I do think that this Arsenal team should be, I, I think they're better than Spurs. I think they're better than Chelsea. I think they're the second best team in the league. And I think Manchester City and Arsenal are sort of in a class in their own as the top two teams in the league. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a believer in Spurs in the way that you are. I know that, you know, I sort of have to put aside the aesthetics because that is just sort of the case with with Antonio Conte teams. Like they just are not pretty. But I I just have I have a hard time believing that a team like that can win the Premier League. Like it can grind it out enough um, to grind their way over thirty eight games. I, I just think this league is is different. Maybe I'm I'm being overly presumptuous, and maybe there is still room for Jose Mourinho's Antonio Conte's to win this league. But I I, I just don't think you can do that over thirty eight games. But I mean, they're they're only four points off the top. They're only three points off of Man City. If they beat them head to head, you know they they will be up, will be in and amongst it. But yeah, I just think Arsenal today they deserve, they earned your respect. I think that's my biggest takeaway from today. No, that's fair. They deserve our respect. There's been a real leap forward there, um, and I enjoy watching them play. You know, I, and I thought this was a very chaotic but entertaining game. It reminded me of an MLS game a little bit. Uh, yeah. In the sense of like lots of mistakes that made it entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was it was the it was sort of very end to end nature of it. I, I want to say it was the second Arsenal goal. Yeah, because there was a, there was a, a huge call for offside um, that just starts from a defensive action outside of the Arsenal area, 
and within five seconds, that's it's right down the other end, and Arsenal go and score. And it was, that, that was sort of the when you said MLSE, that that's what it made me think of. It was like, all right, Liverpool can score. Nope, they conceded. Like that, that, that is a very MLSE way that games can can play out. But let's talk Christian Pulisic. You mentioned it. He got a start, and so like. I was thinking heading into this game, if Pulisic doesn't start, that's a terrible sign for him and Graham Potter because Pulisic didn't play at all midweek in Champions League. He does start. He does get a goal, um, which is big for him. And, And Chelsea gets a win. And do you think this could be the start of something positive for Christian Pulisic? It's interesting because at times during his Chelsea career, he has looked on the outs, he gets a chance, and all of a sudden gets a run of starts. Like, this wouldn't be the first time that's happened. I mean, that being said, there was a big Champions League game in midweek. They changed seven players from that team, and I do think there is something to the status of you're in the change team. Now, Chelsea did play very well at home. Um, he scored a goal, albeit he didn't have a tremendous first-half performance, um, right. but... I, I do think that getting a goal and getting a bit of confidence and maybe Potter uses you as an attacking substitution, I, I still do find interesting though. First off, he starts the game at wingback. Second, Chelsea are still playing with wingbacks. So I think unless Koulibaly is going to be the player that allows them to stabilize in the four in the four at the back, I don't I don't know if Graham Potter's gonna have the confidence that frankly the last two Chelsea coaches haven't had that they don't really trust their their two in defense if they're going to send their fullbacks forward and not really without Angolo Conte to fully cover in midfield. I don't know if you can play out of a four with this team. So Pulisic's going to have to figure out solutions to either play at wing back or to play um, or, or to really wedge himself into those attacking positions, which are pretty tough to come by because Chelsea have gone back to playing with strikers, whether it's Aubameyang from the start or Broya off the bench. They're going back to playing with strikers. So now they're playing for two attacking positions. And they spent a lot of money on Raheem Sterling. And Mason Mount has been favored now by four different Chelsea managers. So at a certain point, you sort of have to come to the re- to the realization that, oh, Mason Mount's just a regular part of this team. And he's going to play in one of those attacking positions. So it's very thin margins for Pulisic. And so getting a goal helps. But I don't know if this is going to be you know, him locking down a position in in the attack at Chelsea. No, the games are coming fast and furious too. So I, I kind of don't expect him to have much of a role, if any, against Milan midweek. Yet another Champions League week. It seems like every week is a Champions League week at this point. Um, and then Leeds United, I wanted to bring up, because they had a weird game uh, at Crystal Palace where in the first half, Leeds dominated the game. And... They go up 1-0, should have gone up 2-0. Patrick Bamford had a great ball from Tyler Adams that uh, he didn't convert. It was saved. And then sort of after that is when things started to go south and the equalizer came from Crystal Palace in the first half off their one chance. And then Crystal Palace totally dominated the second half to the point where the goal that they got to win was deserved. And you left wondering like what happened to Leeds in the second half there. And that I think is an overall trend with this team that has me concerned because the way that they come flying out from minute one and the speed with which they're playing, it jumps off the screen. And so much so that as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, this is unsustainable, the degree to which 
they are flying at Crystal Palace players. And Crystal Palace, even at times when they were struggling to cope, would still be able to string six and seven passes together and then eventually gave it away. Uh, and Brendan Aronson did really well to help create the first goal for Leeds, but Patrick Banford also had a one-on-one with Guaita, the, the Crystal Palace keeper, couldn't finish. And I actually thought to myself in that moment, I was going to sort of, I was half watching and half uh, preparing for, for the game I was doing later the day. And I thought to myself at that moment, I think they're going to regret that because I was watching it going, the, the, the speed, the raw speed that they're running around the, feed, the, the field with just isn't, you can't do that for 90 minutes. And so what happens when that stops? And I think that's the thing that, Jesse Marsh has to worry about because in some ways Marcelo Bielsa for all the criticism he gets for his training methods he did sort of train his team to do that for 90 minutes and if we're saying that Jesse Marsh doesn't quite do that in the same way they sort of have to have I don't want to say a plan B but a plan where you sort of lower the throttle you go from fifth gear to third gear. You're still playing with intensity, but not like full on, you know, flying at defenders and two two players towards an attack or, or, or towards a defender to win the ball back and play it forward quickly. Like you have to have a third gear version of that. And that I think is what Leeds is missing right now. They're missing that ability to, if they're not completely running around at their opposition, what do they do? Yeah, I think it's a good point. And, you know, now Leeds has Arsenal coming in to Ellen Road next week. And... You know, Leeds at least does have a week between games, which Arsenal does not. Arsenal's probably mm-hmm. got a deeper team as well. Um, but that's going to be a big challenge for Jesse Marsh because they've gone five games in the league now without a win, only two points out of 15 in those games. And that's since the Chelsea win. So it's been a little while since that Chelsea win. And if you're Leeds United, you don't want to be in the relegation zone this season. So you need to start getting points. Um, and we'll see. I mean, like I thought that the Americans, Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson had a, had a pretty good game. Aronson was much more influential in the first half, extremely influential. Adams can go forever, by the way. Like yeah. that guy is just crazy, pretty incredible, um, in terms of his fitness. Um, and then I also wanted to bring up another game in Europe, their classicer where, one of the best video reactions we've seen in quite a while is Oliver Kahn's response to Dortmund getting the late, late, late equalizer in this game and just being absolutely annoyed with what Bayern Munich did to go from being up 2-0 late to 2-2. And the thing that was so startling about how that game played out is after 65 minutes, I was sort of wondering, like, what does Dortmund have to do to like as a club to get over the mental hurdle that is Bayern Munich? Because Jurgen Klopp sort of did that with his singular force of personality, but there is just something about that club that I, I just didn't think that they were getting over the hurdle. That m- maybe they've gone too young, maybe they haven't brought enough a big enough coach, maybe they haven't fully kicked on with all the money that they've gotten from player sales in the last few years. Like you just sort of like think that there should be a really great young player in every position that is filled in in each of the spots that are sort of left behind. And I just don't think that the players there are strong enough. And then all of a sudden, they scored two goals, including one very late in the day through Anthony Modeste. And maybe they are there. Maybe they are at that level. Or Bayern has come back to the rest of the pack. And Union Berlin won again away at Stuttgart. They're now four points clear of Bayern at the top of the league, so they'll be at least on top for one more weekend. 
And I think now all of a sudden the questions flip to Bayern Munich and what's happened with that team and the way that they've struggled um, in, in the Bundesliga after really dominating the first few rounds. They haven't been the same team since. And so what, no, what's, what's gone wrong at Bayern Munich and is Julian Nagelsmann the coach to get them out of the predicament that they're in? Yeah, it's totally unpredictable. I mean, like the, the Bayern would find themselves in this position in the Bundesliga, but here they are. They're actually not doing badly in the Champions League, which was the concern. And yeah, there's certainly some doubt now with Nagelsmann. That's the the other side of when you've won 10 straight Bundesliga titles is if you don't do it, then the coach is on the hot seat. So I don't think he's going anywhere necessarily, but this has been a, a not great stretch for Bayern Munich. Um, and also too, Alfonso Davies got hit in the face by Jude Bellingham foot uh, this weekend. And I hope he's not out for very long. I want Alfonso Davies to be at full strength for the World Cup mainly because I think he could do something really cool and Canada is, has the potential to do something really cool, but he needs to be at 100%. Yeah, we are we are fully into the World Cup stress zone where <laughs> a, a a groin injury could keep you out. Right. Like we're we're into the we're into the minor injury could not minor but relatively minor like not an ACL or an Achilles uh is going to keep you out. So if you pull a hammy, it's time to be really concerned because uh you, you might not be fully fit and firing come, come come the World Cup. Or even like a Kyle Walker who had yeah. surgery this past week on his, was his groin um, mm-hmm. and is now probably, he's, he's missing the World Cup. You know, Paul Pogba is going to miss the World Cup, it looks like. It's, I don't want to see anyone miss the World Cup, man. It's only once yeah. every four years. Yeah. Um, I do want to end on one thing here. I actually had a blast on Saturday morning. My friend Brendan Hunt, Coach Beard from Ted Lasso, invited me to come out to Richmond, which is a real place in London, and gave me a tour of Richmond and the Ted Lasso show highlights. And it was an absolutely fun time. And uh, I may write something about it just because uh, he's he's good people. And um, They've been all over, haven't they? They, they, were, they were at the NFL London game. They went to the U.S. women game. I think they've been to multiple Arsenal games. Uh, the, this last two weeks is like, I see Ted Lasso on every single television screen I'm near. It's pretty crazy. And and they're still shooting full time. They're they're like shooting really? the last episodes of the season. So um yeah, it, it it's pretty wild. But but Brendan actually sat with me in the bar or out in front of the bar, bought me a beer, and it was amazing how many people recognized him and wanted pictures and how good he was to deal with all of it. But it was also really cool to see how much People, what people would say to him about how positive the show has been for them. Yeah. And it must be really cool to be part of something that gives people that kind of joy. And maybe sports does that. But like this show, I think, has resonated with people on an even higher level, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I was just sort of amazed at, uh, at the responses that he got. But And my favorite part of that is that in, in retrospect – there was like the, the show is, I mean, at least the beginning of it, season two was a bit darker, but the first season was very much about, you know, positivity and, you know, optimism in the face of a cynical world. And the funny thing is that, including my reaction, but I remember at the time when the show came out on Apple, like hearing like English pundits was like, what is this stupidity? This is nonsense. 
And like, and the idea that that was the sort of greeting from people who hadn't even seen it is sort of hilarious in retrospect because it's sort of arguing against itself in that way. It's arguing against you know the the show or like the existence of this thing without people even needing to even consume it. And so yeah. it's sort of fascinating in retrospect how, I mean, people in England who would be the first to be the most cynical about making a show about English football um, are, are people who would sort of be the first to turn up to him and say, hey, is, so like, so did you go to the bar where like the dart scene was shot? Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that, that's great it's, stuff. It's, it's all like, they're not making up stuff. Like it's right, you know, Richmond Green is right outside there. And yeah. you know, I recognize just walking around various scenes from the history of the series, from sort of the the, the view in the overlooking the hills, mm-hmm. uh, where they shot some scenes uh, early on uh, in season one, and then coming down the hill to and there's a there's a little shrine to the show inside the bar, uh, oh, which I thought cool. was kind of cool, and um, it, it just was thoroughly pleasant. Richmond's a nice place. It's uh, as 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 he put it to me, their original script was for a much more working class town and Richmond kind of isn't, but um, <laughs> it's a bit posh. <laughs> it's a bit, but, um, and also to his credit, he's actually living there. Um, and, um, you know, like this, this whole season they've been shooting for quite a while, I think. So, um, I'll be fired up for them when they get the shooting done. I'll be fired up for us when we get to see season three. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's time. I'm ready. Although uh, I, I argued on Levitard's show because uh, actually the creator of the show, Bill Lawrence, is a friend of the program. And uh, I have argued that I actually don't. I, I still think that Ted Lasso is underrated because they basically <laughs> uh, like help really announce Apple TV Plus as a service you sort of had to have. Even if it was for one show, you had to have it for the one show, and so I think uh, I think they should get residuals of like every subscription to Apple TV, uh, Apple TV Plus. That's my that's my hot take. I'm also curious to see if they try and do any tie-ins with MLS now that they have MLS coming in mm. uh, next season, because people tend to associate Ted Lasso not with MLS but with Premier League soccer. But yeah, who knows? Anyway, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thanks as always. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I want to thank Chris Whittingham, the producer and pundit. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Mm